Welcome here to Redcast. Redcast, today we'll be talking about Belfast Celtic, the great Belfast side, gone but most certainly not forgotten. And a big welcome to Jack Duffin. Jack Duffin from Ancoistia Tours in Belfast, uh, a guy I met a couple of months ago. We've become good comrades since. Uh, and Jack is a local Belfast historian, uh, political campaigner, and a former member of the official IRA, a guy with a, a bunch of great stories about Celtic and indeed about the politics of the so-called Troubles. We'll be talking about both uh, in this podcast and in the one to follow. And my comrade, Alex Gordon, welcome to Alex, a London trade unionist, uh, and my co-host on the Redcasts. Right, first of all, let's talk here about Belfast Celtic. Now, Belfast Celtic are gone, but most definitely not forgotten. Founded in 1891, a few years after Glasgow Celtic, and inspired by the great Glasgow club. as a team for the Irish immigrants in Glasgow, and with a sense of responsibility towards the community. Belfast Celtic were founded to imitate their counterparts in style, play, and charity. Now, on formation, one of the founders of Belfast Celtic was instructed to write to the Glasgow club for assistance. They replied immediately by sending check, though I can't find out anywhere how much it actually was. Now, this helped Belfast Celtic in more than one way. Times were tough in the first year, uh, but one of the dominating factors in their determination to carry on despite the troubles were, what would Glasgow Celtic think about us after getting the check from them? So, 1896, admitted to the Irish League. In 1900, they won that league for the first and by no means the only time. 1901, they played their first game at the legendary Celtic Park. Now, Celtic were always the team of the nationalist community in Belfast, and Celtic Park was in the heart of Catholic West Belfast. But the club wasn't sectarian. Many of the famous players were Protestants, as indeed was the most successful manager, Alicia Scott. And Protestants consistently formed a good 10% of the club's support. Like most things, the history of the north of Ireland is a bit more complicated than it looks. However, the club's support was overwhelmingly Catholic, and in 1912, the turbulent politics in the northern counties lay behind some serious violence, including gunshots, in the game between Celtic and their near neighbours, Linfield, the team favoured by West Belfast Protestant and Unionist community. Also in 1912, somewhat incongruously, Celtic Park hosted a pro-home rule meeting which was uh, spoken to by the arch-imperialist Winston Churchill. Things are definitely more complicated than they seem. Now, the Great War ended formally in 1919, but hostility certainly didn't cease in the north of Ireland. In 1920, the Irish Football Association fined and suspended Celtic following violent incidents at the Irish Cup semi-final. Celtic was forced to abandon their participation in the 2021 season, and didn't rejoin until 1924 and 25. A triumphant return with Celtic winning the league four times in a row between 1925 and 1928. They were champions on six more occasions in the 30s and also uh, in the 1947 and 1948 and 1948 and 1949 seasons. Then it was pretty much all over. The spark for the end came on 26th December 48 traditional Boxing Day league game between Linfield at Celtic at Windsor Park. Celtic were winning for most of the game. Linfield equalised in the last minute. Linfield fans, high on adrenaline and sectarianism, invaded the pitch and began attacking several Celtic players, including centre-forward Jimmy Jones, a Protestant, who suffered a broken leg and was kicked unconscious. Now, Linfield issued a statement in which they blamed the attack on provocation from Celtic. Celtic's own statement blamed Linfield, but focused particular criticism on the police, who remained passive and made no arrests. Celtic also felt the response from the Irish Football Association was wholly inadequate. The team's management met on the night of the match and decided the club had no option other than to withdraw entirely from the league after the end of the 1949 season. 
Celtic played the final Irish League game on Thursday, April 21st, 1949, when they defeated Cliftonville 4-3 at Celtic Park. Ironically, Cliftonville are now the team favoured by Belfast's nationalist community. And just last night, I was watching Cliftonville play Crusaders, the team that, oddly enough, replaced Celtic uh, for the season just after 1949. Now, Celtic had one last great hurrah. After the league season was over, Celtic went on a 10-game tour of the USA and Canada. The high point was a 2-0 victory in New York over the Scottish national team, the recently crowned British champions at a time when that actually meant something. This was Scotland's only defeat during their nine-match tour of North America and became one of the most famous games in Celtic's history. Scotland have never since played a club team. Now, at no time was any specific reason given to the public for the team's withdrawal from the Irish League. The club quietly sold all its players to other teams, including some prominent uh, English first division sides, and were replaced by Crusaders. In a 2011 profile, the Guardian spoke with a Celtic fan called Jimmy Overend, who was then 86, about the void left by the team's exit. Now, those of us who never saw the club, but were brought up with tales of its legendary prowess and what it meant to the community and the tragedy of its demise, we can feel his words. It was like a black cloud coming down, as if there was nothing to live for or look forward to on a Saturday. It's a grief which never went away. So, a brief history of Belfast Celtic. Hope you find that illuminating, albeit slightly tragic. Alex, over to you, sir. Uh, yeah, thanks, Stuart. That's um, it's an incredible history, and I don't think that uh, it's well known on this side of the water. I've got to say, um, it's an extraordinary history, and we're going to find out uh, hopefully a lot of the background about the players, the fans, the community, and uh, the continuing attempts to revive the club uh, from talking to Jack in the next few minutes. Uh, so perhaps I could just start out, Jack, by asking you about uh, your role. Uh, as a uh, Irish Republican uh, tour guide with uh, Anne Coyster. And can you just perhaps tell us what is it that you're particularly concerned to show visitors to Belfast uh, when you're showing them around West Belfast? And how does that uh, relate to the history of the grand old team, uh, the Belfast Celtic? Well, uh, most of the... Uh the work that I do as a historian, I work for Koshia. Koshia is, uh, as I said, it's an association of actual Republican prisoners. And the purpose, the purpose of, of, of Koshia is to provide employment for ex-prisoners and to deliver the Republican message. Because we're well aware of the power of the media to misrepresent what Britain has been doing here in Ireland. Uh, so that, that, that's the purpose of it. But I'm, I'm the exception in the club, and I'm not, I'm not an ex-prisoner. I've never been to jail, I'm glad to say, you know. Uh, but also, I'm the, only, I'm the only stick in the club, you know. The, uh, and the, how I, Sorry, I, Jack, I can got, you explain what a stick actually is? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, whenever the split came, whenever the split came in 1970, and I'll tell you more about that. I'm sure you're going to ask me about that later on. Oh, right. Uh, you know, all Republicans at East and, and Easter Sunday, we were on Easter Lily, you know, to commemorate the 1916 rebellion. It's like a coloured stamp, you know. Uh, and uh, But then when the split came, we had two two different factions. We had what was known as the Provisional IRA and the, the Official IRA, the Provisional Movement and the Official Movement. And we couldn't wear the same, the same uh, thing, you know, so... Uh, it was agreed that the, the provisionals would use a pin, you know, and uh, we would, ours would stick on like a stamp. So they, they called us the stickies, you know, and, uh, and the that, name, name stuck. <laughs> and the name stuck. I remember, just, just, I don't want to digress too much, you know, but uh, people were falling out, you know, you, you didn't know who was a stick and who was a provy, and, and you lost friends, and, you know, it was a terrible time, you know, but, I was walking through Belfast city centre and, and an elder Republican said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm trying to say, are you a stick? He said, look, look, I'm in a hurry, you know. And he said, you sure? You're not a stick. And he shouted after me, he said, do you know what your problem is? 
You just don't want to go to jail and you haven't got the guts to join the Communist Party. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, to get to the point, you know, uh, I've been delivering uh, historical tours now for some years. And one of the, I've taken people to battlefields throughout Ireland, I've taken people to West Cork, the Battle of Ben Burb, Yellow Fort. I've researched those all over the years. But the most popular uh, historical tour is the 1798 Rebellion, which had a major impact on my life itself, you know. And uh, some of the Koistia management were on one of my tours, you know, and, and they liked me, so they asked me to work for them. So that, that's how I, so I, I've been doing that. And of course, I've been a political activist. I was in the IRA, you know, I was a founder member of the civil rights movement here in Ireland. And, you know, so, I mean, I, I certainly qualify. <laughs> You've been a busy man, Jack. Right, we'll talk about that a wee bit later. Let's get back to uh, Celtic. Tell us about your own relationship with Celtic as a boy, uh, and also now as a gentleman of a certain seniority. Well, you see, I, I, I went to football matches when I was a young guy, you know, but even when I was out watching the distillery and watching the oven, there was only one team really that, that weren't there, you know, it was Belfast Celtic, because it, was, it wasn't just, Belfast Celtic weren't just a great, the greatest football club in Ireland, they were much, much more than that. They were the heart and soul of, of nationalist, West Belfast, you know, they, they uh, if you were to, if you were to uh, pick somebody at random from West Belfast and ask them to give you the history of their family, you know, going back, you know, they may have had a grandfather who was born out of his house in 1920, like, like I was. I had my uncle Jack was murdered in 1922. The whole history you know, of, of a family in West Belfast would be a big partition, the 20s, the hungry 30s, the riots, the 30s, the, the burnings of Catholics out of their houses in the, in the 1960s, the civil rights. You know, it would be a very gloomy history, you know, but there would be something in that which, which wasn't gloomy. A, a major part of that history would almost certainly be Belfast Celtic because uh, they had such an impact became the heart and soul of West Belfast on their way to become soul of nationalist Ireland, which they asked for throughout the world. They made, and, and their loss, uh, you certainly, you, you said that you gave a brief history of Belfast Celtic, but that was quite a concise history you gave, you know, on uh, the impact. I mean, the fact, people, some people regard me as being an expert in Belfast Celtic, which I'm not, you know, but the fact, I've never seen Belfast, I'm too young, except a couple of years after they had left football, they came back and played a match against, against Celtic in Scotland, from Scotland, you know. But the fact that they meant so much to me and other communities, there's, there's young people today who don't even remember their stadium, which existed over 30 years after the, the, the team didn't exist, you know, and yeah, it still it makes an impact on them. So should we should we just um, get an idea about phys physically, geographically, uh, where the club was based? So it's in well West Belfast, between the Falls and Donegal Road. That was the stadium paradise. So my, and can you just talk about the stadium itself? How how that came to well the demise of it? What it what's left of it today? What's it been turned into? And um, can we talk about where it was located in terms of it was adjacent well, to both the West Belfast Protestant community in Sandy Row and the West Belfast Catholic communities off uh, off the falls. How how did that uh, juxtaposition uh, create an atmosphere? It must have created one hell of an atmosphere on uh, on yeah. match days. Well, well Belfast is environed by by these hills, and on the west of Belfast. I've got these lovely, and they slope down to uh, Belfast itself. And where they, where the hill, at the, at, really at the foot of the hills, is the Falls Road, and the Donegal Road slopes down further, it becomes flat. 
on that flat area was a, a region of very marshy ground called the Bog Meadows, you know. And when the, when the club started, they didn't have a home. They played in a place which was known as the Klondike, which was became a Gaelic football ground, you know, in the, near the White Rock. And uh, they played in uh, another place on the Falls Road. Those, that place doesn't exist now, it's all built over. But in 1920, Hugh Michael Linden, their, their manager, their, their, their chief director, uh, he, he built Celtic Park on that, just, just at the very bottom, at the very bottom of the, of the Donegal Road. And, uh, you know, that, that was, that was, that's what the state, but it was about 13 acres just from that flat area at the bottom of the Donegal Road. Uh, and that, that's very close. If you just go beyond that, you know, you're in the, the Loyalist Village. You know, which is very close to that. Uh, and, and Belfast, you know, areas, regions which have traditionally been uh, been regions of conflict between communities. So if you were to walk down one street, you'd be you'd be in a, a nationalist community, and the next street maybe a unionist community. You know, it's like that all over Belfast. But you could actually see Windsor Park from from Celtic Park. You know, you, you can see it. They're, they're, they're pretty close, less than a mile apart. Win, win, Windsor Park being? That's Linfield Stadium. Belfast, Celtic and Linfield was like Celtic and Rangers. Uh, of course, Windsor Park, you know. <laughs> you, you don't have to use your imagination too much. You with can the, understand it. You wouldn't have to use your imagination too much uh, with, uh, with the name they've chosen there for their ground. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah, Windsor Park is definitely a loyalist place. Uh, I've been there a few times supporting uh, Northern Ireland with my cousin, who likes, I used to like to go and see a few Northern Ireland games. And it wasn't always the most comfortable place to be, even in Northern Ireland games when we're all supposed to get together. So, Jack, uh, how did Celtic's demise affect football? in the north of Ireland, in your opinion? Uh, football has never recovered from a loss. Football was a major loss. Belfast, Celtic, Irish League football hasn't, couldn't, hasn't survived that. You know, because Belfast, Celtic were, were great, but the other teams weren't too far behind them. You know, Linfield, Glenthorne, Distillery, you know, they were great teams as well. You know, uh, but the Irish League used to take part in a tournament with the English League and the Scottish League, and they just picked they just picked a, a team from each league. And the Irish League in those days held their way. You know, they weren't you could you couldn't expect a team from the English Premier League today not to defeat heavily a team from the Irish League today. You know, but that wasn't the case then. You know, the whole standard of football. Belfast Celtic played in front of crowds of forty thousand, you know. And uh, I was at a I was at an Irish league match fifty years ago, and I counted the number of people at the match. I was able to count them 70, 70 people uh, at, a, at a, an Irish Premier League match, the top league in Ireland. <laughs> the seventy people at the match. Yeah, like I say, last night I was watching Crusaders versus Cliftonville, and uh, there there were some supporters in there. But in all honesty, I couldn't you, you couldn't really say COVID had affected attendances at Irish League games because there were never very many people there. Yeah, they certainly seemed to go ahead and uh, uh, their loss kicked Irish football as much as it kicked the Catholic community in West Belfast. Why do you think there's been a bit of a revival? about Celtic these days. I remember as a kid, my father talking about Belfast Celtic with his own interpretation was that they won everything, so the prods basically shut them down. <laughs> there was a certain element of truth in that. Uh, but uh, it wasn't really part of the folklore so much. Maybe we had more important things to talk about. But these days, all over the falls, you see plaques to Celtic. Why do you think there's been such a revival? Well, you see, Belfast Celtic never went away. They're, they're still part of the folklore of, of, of Belfast. And there was always a hope that they would come back into football. You know, nobody really took seriously, you know, the fact that they were away permanently. Because in 1920, they left football and came back a couple of years later. And I remember my father saying, you know, uh, 
Celtic, you know, they, they, they would come back. As long as the stadium was there, as long as the stadium was there, there was always hope that they would come back. And the stadium, although it was starting to crumble a bit in its, its last years, you know, uh, uh, it was an excellent, it was an excellent stadium. It was an excellent potential, you know, for it. And uh, at the match that they came back in 1953, I think it was, the play Belfast, the play Celtic in Scotland, the supporters were, were singing, you know, will you not come back again? You know, that Scottish song, will you not come back again? You know, and uh, but once the stadium, once the stadium was demolished in 1983, like, even then, all hope was, wasn't still going then, you know, because then we had Donegal Celtic. There was always going to be a team. There was always going to be a team with Celtic and the name is going to come back. That name. And now, uh, there was a guy who's a millionaire. He went to Donegal Celtic management just, just a few years ago. And he offered them a lot of money and said that if they would change their name to Belfast Celtic, he would guarantee that they'd be playing European football in a very short time, you know. Uh, but the Donegal Celtic management didn't want to know anything about it, you know. But there now is a, there is a team in West Belfast now called Belfast Celtic. There's, there's actually two teams, two different clubs. There's another club, Belfast Celtic Women and Belfast Celtic Youth. And, you know, but that name, was, it was always going to be used again, I would say. And uh, right, last one from me for a wee while. Uh, tell us about, and this will surprise a few people, Celtic always had Protestant players and they always had a good hardcore of Protestant supporters. Now, a lot of um, British people probably won't realise this. We were talking about that in Belfast a while ago. Uh, there used to be that, it was a wee church on the Falls Road, all right, and there was a Protestant community around there. And from that place, didn't the Orange Marches leave until sometime in 1970? Tell us about that place. Yes, that's, uh, I think it's St. Paul's Church, you call it, it's on the Falls Road. Uh, and uh, there was an orange, there was a community of orange men actually lived very close to it. And uh, there, was a, there was a bar on the Falls Road that's called, it's, uh, uh, it's a Manchester United supporters use that bar today. You know, right, right around that. Beside the Royal Hospital was a, a community of orange men. I used to work with one of them, a guy called Eddie Gibney. Excuse me, I had a used to drink with him another time in, in that bar, you know. But the, every year on the 12th of July, they marched about 30 yards to that church on the Falls Road, right up until about 1970, mm. you know. And they, they were, weren't molested in any way, and it was part of that. that, that, that was, Part of the history of the road, you know, but there's no, uh, there's no orange. I doubt if there's any orange man lives lives on the Falls Road today, you know. But there's certainly Protestant people live there, you know. But I don't think there's any orange man on the Falls Road today. But that's uh, it's it's a that's called the Cumberland now. That's uh, that's been taken over. It's a community centre. It's a great restaurant. It's a bookshop. It does language classes in it, you know, and it's. It's a popular, it's a popular resort for local Republicans. You know, you go and have a cup of coffee or level to meet Jerry Adams in it or some of the Republican leaders. You know, and we have meetings. We usually want to meet somebody. Sometimes always meet in the Cumberland. You know. Yeah, it'd be interesting for people to think that um, there's a certain idea of Northern Ireland being racked by sectarian hatred, but even in the in the falls in the late sixties, early seventies, there was a Protestant population there. Uh, and they weren't molested, and the marches went down the street for a wee while. Yeah, things are always a bit more complicated than people appear. Alex, you had a question? Yeah, so uh, if anyone listening to this podcast is uh, going to visit Belfast and interested in finding out about the Belfast Celtic, Jack, uh, I believe there's a Belfast Celtic Museum, uh, which I think is on the site of the former Celtic Park, which is now, I guess... A shopping centre and uh, car park, essentially. Um, so, could you just say a couple of words about uh, the museum, how that's been run, uh, who is involved in, um, in in getting it started, and uh, just give some people who are listening and might want to visit it an idea about what they might expect. Yeah, I myself don't have any uh, anything to do with the museum. Although I've donated some some things to the museum. My father 
when he died, my mother, he had a big postcard size pictures of the 1937 Belfast Celtic team, you know, and they had every player on it, except the goalkeeper for some reason, you know, and I gave that, I gave the, the, those to the museum, so they have them on display. Uh, the museum was uh, came into existence just a few. I can't I can't remember exactly what year, but probably not much less or no more than twenty years ago. You know, and uh, it's some of the uh, people who run it are descendants of of players who, who played for Celtic. Charlie Tully's uh, grandson, you know, has got something to do with it. They've offered me a, a free a key to it. To the museum, you know, and they asked me that if they get round to it, uh, would I take tours, you know, if, if they did a Belfast Celtic tour, you know, would, would I, I, and I said that I would do that, all right, you know. Uh, but uh, it's quite an excellent museum, you know, it's got, it's got the whole history of the club, it's got, and people have given lots of donations to it. And um, for, for those who want to find out do some preparation work before they come and visit the museum. Uh, there's a fantastic website as well, uh, Belfast City uh, website, uh, with links to books, pamphlets, newspaper articles, and also videos uh, about the history of the club and their achievements. Um, so let's perhaps talk a little bit about the actual history of the club. I mean, first of all, uh, 1891. Uh, a period when you know the football association uh in England was just uh, uh was just uh, sort of twenty years old and we're getting the the rapid growth of football football clubs uh, across england Scotland Wales and ireland uh, and this club emerges in west belfast quite a quite a a, a dynamic uh, a, a, a dynamic city, a, a city that's the, you know, the heart of the engineering manufacturing of the of the British Empire to some extent. You know, a rival with cities like Glasgow, Newcastle, um, and here you have this club which comes to prominence in the Irish League very, very quickly. What was the reason, in your opinion, uh, for the early success of the club? Why was it so much more successful than? Other clubs in Belfast. Why was it more successful than other clubs uh, in other parts of Ireland? What was the secret of Belfast Celtic success? Well, I think that Belfast Celtic, whenever, whenever football was was uh, sort of becoming a, a sport of the working classes in the nineteenth century, we had the growth of these great clubs in England and Scotland, you know, and. Uh, and in Ireland, you know, football, but football, probably more than any other sport, you know, uh, also attracts, it attracts a working class, you know, it's a sport of the working class. And all the stresses and strains, you know, of working class people, you know, find their, seem to find their way onto the terraces of football matches. And that's probably, that's, that just isn't in Ireland, you know. But I think, uh, more than any other club, Celtic in Scotland and Celtic and 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 here in Ireland, you know, was more rooted in the history of, of the working classes. And in fact, uh, I got into a wee bit of trouble, you know, with the, with the local Celtic fans over here a couple of years ago because I I, I don't I don't accept everything that I hear, you know, and we always hear, you know, that that Celtic in Scotland were formed, you know, the reason they were formed was to collect uh, to collect money for the impoverished people. You know, they were a charity. I don't believe that. You know, what was really happening was, you know, the Fenians were blowing the shit out of Manchester and planting bombs in London Bridge, and, you know, uh, and uh, I think they were very much worried about the Fenians and, and, that, and after the famine, the devastation of the famine, Young let me just sorry, Jack. Let me just interrupt there for people that probably don't get the terminology. By the Fenians, you're talking about the Fenian Brotherhood, a revolutionary Irish organisation which caused some aggro in Britain, in particular, uh, in the late 19th century. 
not Fenians as in the derogatory term for Catholics used by some members of the Protestant community. So I just thought I'd clarify that. Carry on, mate. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should have, I should have, I should have actually clarified that myself, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, the revolutionaries uh, in, the, in the 19th century, they called their organization, you know, we had this legend, Ireland, Ireland is rich in legends. We've got this legend that Ireland once had this fantastic army, you know, which was so powerful that even the Romans wouldn't dare invade Ireland. Because uh, as I say in the USA, they would have got their, would have got their butt handed to them, you know. And they were called the Ancient Fiends. And the Fenians called their organization after the Ancient Fiends. And that's how they became known as the Fenians. You know, but they were, they had only, they had one plan to liberate Ireland, and that was to bomb England, you know. And we had these, uh, lots of young people were, were getting out of Ireland to get away from the disaster of the famine and all of that. And they're bringing all that anger with them, you know. And to me, it, it's, it's, it's no coincidence that Catholic clergy were very much involved in setting up Scotland, setting up Celtic in Scotland. Uh, and it's my belief, you know, that uh, the, the purpose of it was to, to get young people away from the, the destructive influence of the Fenians and channel their energies into, into football. You know, they, they may have given money to charity as well, mind you, I don't know. And Belfast, uh, like, you know, there's, there's clergy involved in that as well, you know. So... Uh, and of course, and of, and of course, the uh, the clergy, the the Catholic Church in in Ireland, uh, in the nineteenth century, and into the twentieth century, uh, worked hand in glove with the British imperialists. Uh, it was, uh, you know, they they the reason there was uh, the reason for the Maynooth uh, the Maynooth College being established by the by the Church in Ireland was because the British wanted to make sure that the priests were trained. Uh, in uh, on British territory and weren't going over to uh, weren't going over to Catholic Spain or France uh, to get uh, to get there uh, for their seminaries. So uh, yeah, I mean that's an interesting point that you're making. And the British the British uh, built Maynooth College in 1795. The same year, the British agents formed the Orange Order from the People Day Boys. A hundred years earlier. Oliver Cromwell was hanging Catholic clergy from trains in Ireland, and Catholic priests were, were saying mass and 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 and, pray, and and secret. You know, you know, somebody the penny must have dropped in England. If you want to, if you want to keep Ireland under control, you know, you need to you need to win the clergy. You need to have the let the clergy do that for you. The the the, the Catholic the Catholic hierarchy were very much opposed to the Fenians. Uh, so if, if, just, if we just go back to the uh, the question that I was posing a few moments ago, uh, we, we can we can see the the dramatic success of the early club. It's founded in 1891. By 1896, in only five years, it's getting uh, it's getting uh, membership of the Irish League. Uh, by the turn of the century, it's winning the league. So uh, that's a pretty dramatic rise to prominence. Um, and obviously Belfast was a dynamic working class city, a thriving city in, 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 in terms of its economy, uh, even, if the, uh, even if the working class population didn't necessarily thrive, uh, but it was, a, it was a, a dynamic city to be in. So um, w when we look at the founding of the club and its early years, uh, can you talk a little bit about how the club, um, the role it played in the nationalist community, uh, the, 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 how it took on a symbolism uh, that was uh, non-sectarian, but clearly uh, related to the nationalist community of West Belfast? What, what yeah, was its, it's what was interesting. culture? Yeah, you see, when I'm taking people on tours over here, it's surprising, you know, almost every one of them, they think Catholics hate Protestants, Protestants hate Catholics, you know, and it's uh, the victims of all of this, you know, are equally to blame, you know, the, the victims of 
Presbyterianism regularly to blame for, for what's happening, you know, and the British government who uh, sectarianism in Ireland was, was, was British government policy in Ireland, you know, but, you know, the sectarian hatred of Catholics going away back to the days of Oliver Cromwell, you know, despite, despite the whole history of persecution, I don't, I don't believe that that was reciprocal. Today, and throughout my life, uh, I don't, I don't know anywhere in Ireland or Belfast. I don't know anywhere Protestant people can't live or work or socialize. Or neither should there be, you know. But we've got, we've got the sixty feet fences in Belfast because there's regions where Catholics can't live or work or go about their business. And that's the reality of it. I mean, that's not saying that the, the, the whole Protestant community is consumed with sectarianism, but the sectarian problem is going in one direction. You know, and Belfast Celtic were totally, as, as, as has been already said, were totally non-sectarian, you know, and, you know, and that's probably why, you know, they got so much support because of their non-sectarianism, you know, because they were the champion of of the, the champions of, of the victims of sectarianism, and they themselves were non-sectarian. It's know, also uh, true to say, Jack. Sorry, just to butt in, but uh, it's also true to say that the non-sectarian employment policy certainly helped their success as well. Getting back to what Alec asked before about why they were so successful, because like like Glasgow Celtic. Jock Steen always said if he saw a couple of good players, one was a Catholic, one was a Protestant, he would always pick the Protestant, knowing that Rangers would not go for the Catholic. And I don't think Linfield actually accepted Catholics at all until sometime into the 1980s. Uh, and uh, God, I remember Celtics, uh, Glasgow Celtics' best ever player, in my humble opinion, Danny McGrain. His name was Daniel Patrick McGrain, and you don't get a more Catholic-sounding name than that. Uh, Rangers saw him, said the guy looked good, asked about his name, Daniel Patrick McGrain, let him go, and Celtic got him. He's actually a Protestant. Uh, so that sort of employment policy by Linfield and other clubs in the area, I think certainly helped Celtic, who were always a completely non-sectarian side. Yeah. I mean, just... as well as that, you know, on, on, on all that question still by Alex, you know, uh, Celtic was, uh, Belfast Celtic, you know their management was uh, whilst their 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 supporters were mainly working class. They weren't all working class people, but their management were a mix of Catholic businessmen and doctors. And uh, Hugh Magalinden was was a big bookie, you know, probably a millionaire, you know, a Catholic bookmaker, you know, and uh, the Magalernies of the Irish News uh, and. Uh, Fitzpatrick school teachers, you know, and it, it was uh, it was sort of middle class Catholic management mainly, but but strictly non non sectarian, you know, and of course they were much stronger for being non sectarian, you know, as well. And, uh, I was going to ask you there, um, what was the reaction of uh, the GAA to the existence of a popular club? A football club playing non-Gaelic a non-Gaelic sport in the nationalist uh, community of West Belfast. Well, I should just explain to people who don't know the the GAA is the Gaelic Athletic Association, the the parent body uh, for a Gaelic sport uh, in the island of Ireland uh, and beyond the island of Ireland internationally. Uh, so it covers, uh, you know, uh, all all of the Gaelic sports and Gaelic football to uh, uh, to to uh, uh, well, commode all all of the different Gaelic sports, and it's historically been, you know, pretty uh, opposed to the sports imperialism of the uh, of the of the Anglo uh, of the of the English game. So uh, the spread of you know rugby union, rugby league. Uh, association football, cricket, uh, other games associated with uh, with England. Uh, so I'm just interested in what their response was to this phenomenal success of a of a football club 
uh, playing a quote-unquote Anglo game, a Sassanac game in Ireland uh, in the nationalist community? Yeah, but rugby union, cricket, soccer, still even to this day referred to by Gaelic purists as a garrison sport, you know. And uh, I can say definitely there was quite a lot of hostility towards people playing soccer, you know, from the GAA. You know, and, you know, the, the GAA came about really at the time, you know, that the soccer was developing as a game as well. And in Ireland here, you know, the the uh, reaction to the, to the famine in Ireland and uh, the whole question of British rule was, was being challenged in a way that uh, it never had been challenged since, uh, since 1798, you know. And uh, you had the growth of the GAA and the whole purpose of it was to reassert our Irishness, you know, and our sports and our language, and, you know, and you can understand why that was happening. And, and I remember, you know, that, you know, the way you play soccer, that's a, that's a foreign game, you know, I remember being told that, you know, and uh, yeah, there was, there definitely was hostility from the GAA, from GAA people, you know, who regarded soccer as being a foreign game. I don't think that exists today or, you know, and even in, even in Gaelic football clubs, crowds would be coming in on Saturday to watch Liverpool and Manchester United and, and Arsenal, you know, uh, that that's all gone, you know. But it certainly it certainly did it did exist. Yeah, certainly Celtic's popularity as well would have, uh, I think, kept the GAA away from that. Sorry, Alex, did you want to ask something else, mate? Sorry. No, I was just going to suggest that we. Um we move to talking about the the, his, the great history of the club, the sporting history of the club, uh, because I think we need to uh, remind listeners who uh, may not know about, uh, may not have heard of Belfast Celtic prior to this podcast about the uh, incredible achievements uh, that they, they managed. So, I mean, do you want to run through uh, some of that amazing record there, Stuart? And let's talk about the teams and some of the players. Well, the record is extraordinary. Yeah, what I'll do is stick up on the the, pod, the, the Redcast website all the stuff. But uh, like I said in the introduction, the 1920s, four titles in a row, five titles, I think six titles actually in the 1930s. Uh, and then the last couple of years they played, they won the titles and several Irish Cups. I mean, Belfast Celtic were a huge cultural phenomenon. They actually toured Prague in 1912, one of the first teams from these British Isles to go overseas. An amazing club and a defeat of Scotland, uh, when Scotland were by far the best side in the UK, when that meant something, all right, <laughs> was actually... <laughs> Can you just remind us what year that would have been? That was actually a long time ago before <laughs> we started to play the foreigners on a regular basis and they started to beat all of us. So being British or international champions mattered something in those days. Uh, but uh, what about the great players, Jack, like Charlie Tully? Now, a lot of people don't realise this, but, uh, and there might be some dispute about this, the, the, the Celtic song, it's a grand old team to play for, it's a grand old team to see. Uh, Glasgow Celtic fans sing that all the time now, identify with Glasgow Celtic. That's actually a Belfast Celtic song for which some people give credit to Charlie Tully. I think particularly Charlie Tully himself at the time. What do you got to tell us about that one, Jack, and about Charlie Tully? Yeah, my father, my father wasn't a great fan of Charlie Tully's, you know, uh, most of what I know about Belfast early came from a father, you know, and uh, he didn't particularly like Charlie Tully, you know, he says, they called him Cheeky Charlie, but my, my father regarded him to be uh, very much uh, unsportsmanlike, the way he played his... He, he sort of he made a fool of people on the street. He was so good, you know. He, he made a he, my father didn't like that, you know. But so Charlie Tully was one of the legends, you know. Uh, every every generation, Belfast Celtic had legends. They, 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 you know, there, there's a story about uh, Alicia Scott coming to, to Celtic Park for a match and young people kicking a ball outside the ground, asking them for the take them take them on and uh, give them a trial. He says, Mr. Scott, I'm a, I'm a good player. I'm a very good player, you know. And Scott says, listen, son, 
we, we don't employ good players. You have to be a great player to play for Belfast Celtic. <laughs> it's not enough to be a good player. You have to be a great player to play for Belfast Celtic. And uh, I just I just put, took some of the names out of my head, you know. And every generation, you go back to Mickey Hummel. My father always said that Mickey Hummel was probably the all-time greatest player they ever had, you know. Center half, he played center half, and that team that 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 you referred to that uh, uh, that tour of uh, Europe. Well, you know they played six games and they won five and drew one. <laughs> you know, and Belfast Celtic they were the first Irish team ever to go on a tour, uh, and that was a tour that they went on to. And then when they came back in the nineteen twenty, they, they went out of football in nineteen twenty. We came back in 1924, and they had uh, they went three years with one defeat in all competitions in that. And as I said to you earlier on, I, I, you, you watched Clifford and Crusaders last night. I couldn't give you the name of one player from the Irish League. If you asked me to name even one player from Clifford, I, I wouldn't be able to name it. But I could just give you almost the entire 1924 team. You know, I always remember my father talking about that this famous halfback lane, Pollock, Moore and Inch. And they said that uh, teams from all over Europe were trying to buy that, that, that halfback lane, you know, Bobby Pollock, Sammy Moore, Warhorse Moore, they called them, and Eddie Inch. And they were reckoned to be the greatest halfback lane in Europe, if not in the whole world, you know. And their goalkeepers, you know, uh, uh, Stanley Mahood, Jackie Mahood, these are names way before I was even born, you know, and they were household names, you know, Jimmy Ferris, who went on to play for Preston North End, you know. And you know that Belfast Celtic once had five international goalkeepers to pick from? That seems gonna... an awful lot. <laughs> Alex, sorry, mate. <laughs> I just, just want to go back to something uh, Jack's just said a minute ago. So, the 1912 tour of Europe, well, the, the games that took place in, uh, in Prague, uh, I think I'm right in saying that was the first time a team from uh, the British Isles had toured, a football team had toured in Europe. It was uh, a, groundbreaking, a groundbreaking tour. They won five out of six games. The game they didn't win uh, the, was the sixth one, where the referee apparently had, whether through threats or bribery, uh, had been paid to stand more or less in the vicinity of one of the corner flags and not take part in the game at all. Right. So it was fixed. Uh, so it was a it was an extraordinary uh, extraordinary uh, innovative thing to do to to have a tour of Central Europe, the at the time you know the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, uh, to to play football uh, in Prague, uh, you know the the city of uh, the city of Kafka. Um, the, the city uh, that was uh, what, what, what an adventure to go on! Imagine going from Belfast to Prague in 1912. How extraordinary! Um, let's uh, let th th that's uh, something I think that really goes into the history books. Yep. Yeah, an extraordinary side, an extraordinary history with indeed some extraordinary players. Let's talk a wee bit more about uh, Charlie Tully because, yeah, I get the impression Charlie Tully wasn't the nicest guy out there. He did like to frankly take the piss out of the opposition. Uh, and he moved to Glasgow Celtic afterwards where he had, uh, he's become one of the more famous players in Glasgow Celtic history too. But my favourite story about him is the one with him and Jock Stig. Uh, Celtic weren't doing too good towards the end of the 1950s, Glasgow Celtic. Uh, they got beat and there was a big discussion in the dressing room and Charlie Tully started to blame the number of Protestant players they had in the Celtic side at the time. Jock Steen, a big man and not a man to be mucked around with in any ways, took exception to this and apparently was battering the hell out of Tully. Proper punch up. In the end, they were separated uh, and they didn't speak for some time. Now, Charlie Tully moved back to, to Belfast and uh, sadly died in 1972, height of the troubles at the age of 47. He and Steen had become reconciled, <laughs> excuse me, he and Steen had become reconciled uh, and uh, apparently he wrote to Steen and said, can you come to the funeral? 
Jockstein was advised very strongly not to by the RUC, but he apparently, I think he got an assumed name, got himself across there along with Billy McNeil and attended the funeral. Is that story true, Jack? As far as I know, I'd heard it before, you know, but I, I, I think it's true. You know, now Charlie Tully's not really that long dead. You know, 1971, he died. You know, it's not that long ago, but I don't actually remember the funeral, you know. Uh, uh, I don't know where I was at that particular time, you know, but I think... I You're think probably hiding somewhere, Jack. <laughs> it wasn't up to any good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've seen I've seen pictures of Steen and McNeil at the funeral there. I just thought it was nice they were reconciled, and uh, Tully apparently apologised to Steen and realised he was quite yeah, yeah. right uh, in telling him off for me. Well, more than telling him I, off. I know I know Charlie Tully's grand, grand, I know Charlie Tully's grandson. Well, Brandon mm. Tully, he was a good player, very good player for Cliftonville. You know, he got attacked at Windsor Park. He was playing for Donegal Celtic. A player, a, a guy ran onto the pitch and kicked him. I was at that match. When was that? That was a Donegal Celtic. No, but when? When did that happen? Oh, about twenty years ago. About twenty years ago. Uh, seeing as we're talking about great figures from the past uh, with an incredible history, let's talk about Oscar Trainer, the goalkeeper. Um, so, Stuart, do you want to just uh, outline for us? Uh, Oscar Trainer's incredible career path, uh, both uh, sporting and political. Yeah, Trainer's an interesting guy. He played for, let me just go ahead and check my notes here. So, uh, yes, he was a goalkeeper, played for, played for Black Belfast Celtic, uh, very successful keeper. Uh, and um, he was a 1916 veteran and a former political prisoner and a former government minister. I think he was a mate of Collins, uh, Michael Collins, the Republican leader later on fell out with Collins and uh, became somebody who opposed the treaty forces and backed De Valera in the Irish Civil War. And Jack, did he later on become um, sports minister? In the yeah, became, he also became minister for defence. Really? Minister of defence and he was a goalkeeper. You know, it's <laughs> ironic, isn't it? <laughs> Good between uh, the And the, the Fianna Foyle government. So, he, so, so the, the point about trainer that I was going to come to was, uh, he wasn't from Belfast, was he? He was, he was a Dubliner. Yep. Um, and he plays for Celtic, uh, in that, Belfast Celtic, in that great period uh, before the First World War, um, the 1912 side, in fact. In fact, I think I'm right in saying he's the first player ever to wear the hoops for Belfast Celtic because there's a photograph of the side in, I think, 1912 where the players are wearing stripes, vertical stripes, but the goalkeeper is the only one wearing hoops, and that goalkeeper is Oscar Trainer. I've um, got a big picture next door of it. I should have brought it and showed you. I think yeah. it's on the Belfast City uh, uh, FC website, uh, if people want to have a look at it. He's an incredible character. Um, yeah. So not only was he uh, uh, a friend and comrade of Michael Collins, uh, the leader of uh, the one, one of the leaders, one of the main leaders of the of the uprising, and the man who held the GPO. Uh, but he was put in charge of a detachment uh, to I think one of the one of the hotels that he took the Metropole uh, in Dublin's what is now O'Connell Street and what was then Sackville Street in 1916. So he was key. Uh, one of the key Republicans uh, that were called out at the time of the 1916 uprising. Um, he was imprisoned as a prisoner of war following uh, the uprising by the British in, a, in, uh, in Wales, in some miserable uh, prisoner of war camp uh, for Irish Republican prisoners in Wales, returns back to Dublin uh, after uh, he's released from prison, and then immediately becomes embroiled in the, in the War of Independence on the opposite side from his, his hero or his, his former comrade, uh, Michael Collins. So he's part of the anti-treaty uh, IRA. And, um, you know, it's uh, an extraordinary story, really. The man then ends up joining uh, with de Valera's uh, party, uh, Fianna Foyle, and becomes 
uh, a government minister ending up as Minister of Defence. And as you say, the irony of that is pretty obvious. Uh, he starts out as a goalkeeper and he ends up as a Minister of Defence. But uh, that's, that's an extraordinary story. Tell us uh, a little bit about uh, the legend. Yeah, but he never actually gave up his association with sport, even after his political career. He was involved in soccer in Dublin. He was involved in training young people. You know, and, uh, he was always in, involved in that, you know, right up until his later years. I think there's uh, Oscar Trainer sports uh, facilities or sports centre still on the north side of Dublin. Uh, still a very, uh, you know, a very well-used uh, sports facility where football is played. Yeah. But uh, there was another great Dubliner played for Belfast Celtic in their, their later team, you know, uh, Butter Hearn. He was, he was a Dubliner as well. Guys, I think we better start talking about the fateful 1948 game against Linfield because that was uh, uh, the end of Belfast Celtic, unfortunately. So, Jack, tell us a wee bit about the game, please, mate. And also tell us about the halftime announcement made by the Northern Labour Party guy because we like a bit of idea here of the Labour well, Party as the party of betrayal. Well, that story actually starts well before the game. Yeah. Because their goalkeeper, you know, uh, Kevin Michael Linden, his life was threatened. You know, he, he was he was he was threatened. If he played that he, he was threatened he would be shot. Uh, you know, and there was a, a big build up of tension. And you must remember that Celtic, as far as I know, they were going for their seventh what the seventh title in a row. They, they had dominated football. And it was getting to the stage, you know, uh, Tensions were really getting hot among the, the, the Blues supporters, you know, it was... The Blues being Linfield. It's a bit like the day, you know, Celtic going for 10 in a row. It's, it's life and death for Rangers to win that match. Like, they got much last week. There's no way Celtic was going to win it. It was, it was life and death for Rangers to have to win that, that. You know, I can't allow Celtic to go 10 in a row. It was like that then, too, you know. And uh, Kevin Michael Linden was threatened, and uh, my father was telling me, you know, that uh, throughout Belfast and the lead up to the game, there was an awful lot of tension. It was a, a, a terrible it, sectarianism was 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 going to break out somewhere, and that and that, that that game probably should have been it shouldn't have been played until things settled down. You know, uh, after the threats to Kevin Michael Linden's life. I don't think the game should have been played, you know, but it's all right to say that in hindsight, you know. But to make matters worse, uh, Celtic played a very rough game in the first half. Apparently, we're fouling all around them, you know, but I don't know whether that's true or not. But I, I, don't, I haven't heard any, I haven't heard anybody denying it, you know. And uh, uh, Brayson's leg got broke, or his ankle got broke, and Jimmy Jones. Jimmy Jones was an uncompromising centre forward. You know, he, he holds the record as, as having scoring the most number of goals ever in the, in the Irish League. And Jimmy Jones was only 17 years of age then, yeah, too. And, uh, but Jones, he was like, uh, Jimmy Jones was, was like a bull. You, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't want to be standing in front of him if he, if he was taking a run towards the coach. You know? But Bryson's leg was broken, but at half time, the tension was building, but at half time, Harry Midgley, who was once a labour man, you know, and uh, who turned and became a became a unionist. He became a unionist just a couple of years before that. About I think it was about uh, about nineteen forty seven. He joined the unionist party, um, and uh, he announced over the microphone that uh, that Brayson's leg was broken, and of course that was just. That was just late in the fuse, you know. Uh, and then when Linfield equalised late, late in the match, you know, the Celtic players knew they had to run for their lives. And uh, Michael Linden was, was caught, and Robin Lawler as well, and uh, uh, Jimmy Jones. Jimmy Jones might have been killed, and the policeman, the policeman warned, warned the, the Linfield fans, if you don't stop kicking him, I'm going to draw him a button. 
but uh, and the rest history, you know. Uh, but the, the sure whether they should have gone out of football or not, you know. Uh, there's there's different there's always conspiracy theories, you know, and some people say, you know, there was actually there was financial problems and they used that as an excuse. But I don't I don't know and I don't think anybody will ever know that. Now there's all sorts of rumors that uh, they wanted to go ahead and turn it into a greyhound track and make some more dosh, but uh, I think that underestimates the trauma of well, that I mean thing. it already was a greyhound track since nineteen twenty three. So they had all that money there anyway from the Greyhound, so why would they stop playing football? I think they underestimate the trauma of the game because of what I mean, I've read so many accounts of it and heard so many of accounts of it. But the fact that the RUC did nothing, they let these people come on and they were kicking young men to death. Jimmy Jones was apparently saved by a former Belfast Celtic goalkeeper who I think had been transferred to Balamina United at the time, but he was in the terraces watching the game and. The goalkeeper came on, former goalkeeper, and he said to the cop, you're going to do something about this. Uh, and the cop did nothing. So he threw himself over Jimmy Jones and took some of the kicks and very probably saved his life. Uh, and so it was a real case there. Well, we'll talk later on about uh, the sectarian apartheid state that the north of Ireland was. Uh, but this was a real case of the state actually standing by and letting violence being taken place on being, being perpetrated on young men. So... You can see why they felt they had to stop. Yeah, but if you know if that happened in any other stadium, there would be serious repercussions. But as far as I know, Windsor Park was closed for a week, and that wasn't the only incident like that that happened at Windsor Park. I remember in 1956, the Italian national team was attacked on the pitch at Windsor Park. Of course, the Italians being Catholics, you know, they were attacked. I remember that in 1956. The Italians, uh, and and I mentioned earlier on that Donegal Celtic, you know, was attacked on the pitch as well, and Charlie Tully's uh, grandson uh, Brandon Tully was attacked, and then after that the Linf the, the the RUC attacked the Celtic supporters, and that's Donegal Celtic, you know, uh, uh, just about twenty years ago, you know, and since that. Cliftonville were playing, uh, were playing Linfield at Windsor Park, and a hand grenade was thrown over the over the wall at at the Cliftonville supporters. Now, if a hand grenade was thrown uh, at a football match in England, I would imagine the very least would be that they wouldn't be allowed to play in that ground for I don't know how long. But there was no action taken uh, at all about it. Was this actually a live hand grenade? Yeah, yeah. And what happened? Did it go off? It went off, but there was, well, fortunately nobody was hurt, you know. But uh, it was thrown over the wall. You know, uh, see, you see, Windsor Park is in is in the Loyalist Village. It's, it's right, it's right in the, in the Loyalist, which is which is run by the UVF. UVF control all all that region. There. Okay, well, that takes us on to, I guess, the next part of the podcast. And uh, interesting stuff there, because I mean, the, the theme of this uh, Redcast series is basically sport as politics pursued by other means. And it's very clear from the story of Belfast, Belfast Celtic, sport and politics are inextricably intertwined, particularly in uh, the northern counties of Ireland. Right, guys, I think we'll wrap up just now, this part of the podcast, then we'll talk a little bit more explicitly about the politics uh, later. Any closing comments, gentlemen? Well, I think, uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating story, you know, about Celtic and the, it's a story that'll be it'll be told long after I'm around, you know, and uh, uh, how things are going to pan out now. I'm very optimistic about the future, you know, but but uh, you know, some people say you know you were born too late, you know, you, you missed all of that, you know, but uh, maybe uh, and this, uh, you know, everybody's got ambitions in life. There's always something you would like to. One or two things you would like to see happening in your life, like for me, uh, for me, uh, I'd like to see an end of the royal family before I die. You know, I'd like to see Ireland, obviously, very top of the list. I would like to see Ireland united and free. You know, but the return of Belfast Celtic would be very much way up there as well. You know, but absolutely, absolutely, I think we'd all like to see something like that. Okay, Alex, any closing comments for you there, sir? Uh, well, I, I think the whole um, 
history of the club's amazing. The future of the club is, uh, you know, it's a consummation devoutly to be wished, but we're living in a time when uh, football itself as a mass spectator sport and as a participation sport is in peril. Um, the impact of, well, both COVID, uh, which has shut down, um, you know, stadiums to spectators and the impact of the economic uh, catastrophe, which is essentially uh, the domination of football by uh, advertising through Rupert Murdoch's Sky TV, uh, is in the current circumstances leading to the demise of a number of current clubs, uh, including you can see what's happening to you know, Wigan Athletic, for example, who've, um, who are in real trouble, and they're not going to be the they're not going to be the last one uh, in this country uh, who are going to announce major financial uh, problems. So it would be great to think that we could see the rebirth uh, of a club in Belfast like Belfast Celtic, uh, but I think the uh, the grim reality is we're facing probably the demise of a lot more clubs uh, that go back to the 1890s and even earlier um, in, in this country. So uh, let's talk about, um, well, let, let, let's learn about the past and uh, try and take forward uh, an optimistic view to the future. But I really want to... Sorry, sorry, mate. I just said it's very, very clear that Belfast Celtic and Glasgow Celtic were expressions of the community from which they came from uh, and were very important to those communities. who had been through a hard time. I mean, my, my, my family background is um, Irish Catholic in Glasgow. Uh, and life was tough. Celtic gave people a way out, something to hope for. Belfast Celtic, as well with the Catholic population in Belfast, gave them something to believe in and something to feel proud about on a Saturday. What was the phrase, Jack? It's something like, we had nothing during the week, but at the weekend we had Celtic and we had everything. Yep. And when you see clubs like Manchester United and Liverpool now looking to form some kind of European Super League and take them even further away from the people that made the clubs, uh, this is uh, a real sign of predatory capitalism gone insane uh, and infecting the sporting arena. Anyway, this is all stuff we can rant about for a long time and probably the subject of a future podcast. Gentlemen, let's take a wee break now. Jack, thank you very much well, indeed. Let me just say one thing, Connor, about before we go. Sure. I met Jimmy Jones about six years ago, about, I think about two years before he died. Uh, and he was... He used to come over to West Belfast, you know, and uh, he was taken by the people. I don't think he took very much drink, you know, but he came over with his son. And he said to me that whenever he was a young player, uh, Matt Busby of Manchester United wanted to sign him. He played for uh, a team called Shankaloo Boys from, from Lurgan. And uh, Alicia Scott wanted to sign him from, for Belfast Celtic. He said he told me he thought it over at the weekend and he decided he would he would go to Belfast Celtic. He said because they were a much bigger club than Manchester United. Uh, now that's something I that's something I'd love to see. That's something I'd love to see. Uh, outstanding. If only those days could return. Gentlemen, we better take a break. Thank you very much indeed. All right, speak to you soon. Okay. We're the boys of Belfast town, ranting, roaring, rambling round. We're Irish men of Highland that's the boys of Belfast. We're the boys of Belfast town, ranting, roaring, rambling round. We're Irish men of Highland that's the boys of Belfast. You will find us anywhere in the church around.